The first reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 23. After a long line of corrupt kings who build empires on the backs of the vulnerable, who in their power cannot help but lose sight of why Israel was called into being, Jeremiah imagines what God might say to them. Hear now the words of the prophet. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep in my pasture, declares Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares Yahweh. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have dispersed them and will bring them back to their own pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds who will look after them and pasture them. They will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for the house of David a righteous branch, who will reign as a true ruler and act wisely, and do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name on which they will call Yahweh, our justice. It has been centuries since Jeremiah called out the corruption of Israel's leaders, centuries of exile, unstable governments and oppression, and all the while the people wait with hopeful expectation for that righteous branch, that ruler who will do what is just and right in the land, as Jeremiah called him. Then after all that time, the stories goes that an angel appears to Zechariah to tell him he will have a son, and his son will be the herald of the new age, the one that makes the way straight for the reign of the new king. After months of silence and disbelief, his son is born, and Zechariah opens his mouth in a jubilant song. May we glimpse, catch a glimpse of the kingdom of hope glimpsed by Zechariah. A reading from Luke 1. Blessed are you, the most high God of Israel, for you have visited and rescued your people. You have raised up a mighty Savior for us of the house of David, as you promised through the mouths of your holy ones and the prophets of ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all our foes. You have sworn mercy to our ancestors by remembering the holy covenant you made with them and the oath you swore to Sarah and Abraham, granting that we, delivered from the hands of our enemy, might serve you without fear in holiness and justice in your presence of all our days. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you'll go before our God to prepare the way for the promised one, giving the people the knowledge of salvation through renewed life. Such is the tender mercy of our God, who from on high will bring the rising sun to visit us, to give light to those who live in darkness 
and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. decades passed, and as the angel predicted, John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, became the herald of Jesus, the surprising, extraordinary man from Nazareth. Many, like Zechariah, assumed that Jesus was the promised branch of the house of David, the Christ, the one who would be king over them and lead them into a new age of liberation and freedom. They were so deeply right, and they were so deeply wrong. As Jesus grew, taught, and worked, he taught of a kingdom, but it was mysterious and never quite met the expectations of the people around him. 
The religious elite heard echoes of heresy, and the political elite heard echoes of sedition. In time, one of his disciples grew impatient and disillusioned and handed him over to these powers, who quickly resolved to execute him, to be done with him. In this scene, as told by the storyteller Luke, we see the whole idea of kingdom radically reimagined. Two others were also led off with Jesus, criminals who were to be put to death. When they had reached Golgotha, the place called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there, together with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Abba, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Then they divided his garments, rolling dice for them. The people stood there watching. The rulers, however, jeered him and said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he really is the Messiah of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They served Jesus sour wine and said, if you're really the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription above Jesus that read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there beside him insulted Jesus too, saying, are you really the Messiah? Then save yourself and us. But the other answered the first with a rebuke. Don't you even fear God? We are only paying the price for what we have done, but this one has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your glory. Jesus replied, the truth is, today you'll be with me in paradise. It was about noon and darkness fell on the whole land until three in the afternoon because of an eclipse of the sun. Then the curtain in the sanctuary was torn in two and Jesus uttered a loud cry and said, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. Saying this, Jesus breathed his last. While joyfully giving thanks to God, who 
I remember sitting in a dimly lit church sanctuary with about 200 other college students. The semester had just begun, and the energy of new beginnings seemed to animate everything. In that Wednesday night crowd, where the only substantial lights were on the stage, it was easy to feel relatively anonymous, which was good because that was the only way I was going to risk raising my hands during the music. The college pastor, a young guy in his late 20s, whose fashion choices seemed to revolve around the word relevant, <laughs> had been speaking for only a few moments when he said something simple and unexpected, something that would take root in my soul and change the trajectory of my life. I don't remember the specifics of that sermon, only that he was preaching on Jesus' parables for the kingdom of heaven, but I do remember the moment where he said, it is so tragic that most people live their entire lives thinking the kingdom is just a place you go after you die. And as my head nodded along with everybody else, sincerely offering a, mm, yeah, for those poor, stunted Christians, what I actually thought was, um, what is it then? My Christian narrative at the time had everything to do with what happened after you died and nothing to do with what happened while you were still alive, except that we really weren't supposed to lie or kill anyone. The idea that the kingdom of God could have any kind of present implications was a totally foreign idea. This was all for the future. I'll fly away, O oh glory, I'll fly away. And I take solace in knowing that I was not the first one in history to really Miss the point? Jesus' first words of his new ministry were, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And from that first moment, it seemed like everyone was far more eager to redefine those words than to allow those words to redefine them. Jesus' contemporaries were a marginalized people, under the heel of the greatest empire the world had ever seen. So, of course, they heard them through a lens of politics. Clearly, Jesus was saying that Israel's former worldly power and glory were going to be restored. That he would be the next David, just as Jeremiah had predicted. All the way up until the moment of his ascension, at the end of the story, the disciples were still asking, Lord, is this the moment you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But they missed the point. Over the years, Christianity became a state religion and a profitable institution. And leaders began thinking of the kingdom of God as synonymous with the church. The church was the earthly manifestation of God's authoritative kingdom. And the goal became to make every knee bow before the king at the point of a sword if necessary. And again, we missed the point. 
And then there were folks like me, much later, who would relegate the kingdom to the end of history, something we'd be able to enter when we died or when Jesus came back, something to look forward to, to escape from all of this pain and suffering. And again, you miss the point. I wonder if there's any other element in the story of Christianity that when so grossly misunderstood paralyzes the people of God quite so completely. And perhaps this is why the liturgical season annually puts this Sunday at the conclusion of its story, because it all leads to this. What will we do with this idea of the kingdom of God, the reign of Christ? We've talked about some of the things that the kingdom is not, but let's spend a moment getting to the root of what may be the most insidious habit of humans interacting with this idea of the kingdom. The world has always been eager to claim ownership of Christ's kingdom to bolster its own power. You don't need to look any further than the text we've read in the service to see that pattern established, and you probably won't need to think very hard to recognize its repetition on a modern stage. Samuel's words opened our service, warning the people of what a king would do to them, honest about the problems power creates against the problems that power solves. This would be the note that would set off the symphony that was Israel's monarchy, a line of men baptizing their own egos in the language of a divinely ordained system. With relative impunity, Saul would pillage and plunder. David would rape and murder. Solomon would sell out Israel's identity. Ahab would try to murder the prophets of God who dared tell him the truth, and so on and so forth, down the ages, until the prophet Jeremiah cried out, Enough! Woe to you shepherds, destroying and scattering my sheep. Your people can no longer bear the weight of your oppression and your reign is coming to a close. I will raise up a righteous branch who will act as a true ruler and act wisely and do what is right in the land. And of course, we tell these stories not because they happened, but because they're true, deeply true stories that trace patterns that unfold again and again in our own story. Yvette Schlock, a Lutheran minister in Washington, writes, the kings of our holy stories feel pretty familiar. They're fearful, they're paranoid, and they give mandates that shape policies and build infrastructure in order to harm and diminish the people they see as threatening. They use their power to benefit themselves regardless of the injury caused to others. They take actions that have serious consequences for others for no reason but to save face, and they are thin-skinned, impulsive, and vengeful. Does this sound familiar? Each of these rulers in the Bible, in our history books, and on our news stations are largely enslaved by the ego, which craves power through the domination of others. And what better tool for that than religion? The story of an ultimate power over the whole universe. If we can convince people that God is on our side, that God even looks like us, that God hates the same people that we hate, then the power is ours. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, Jesus preached, and violent people take it by force. And the result is a sort of cultural religion 
in our case, a fear-based cultural Christianity that keeps a select few in power. And it's born the fruit of systemic racism, legalized homophobia, the subjugation of women, all in the name of God, all having nothing to do with God. I recently heard someone define heresy as something that has all the trappings of Christianity while ignoring its essence. And while you won't often hear me call something out as heresy from this pulpit, I will not hesitate to say the hijacking of the kingdom of God for our political gain is heresy to the highest degree. The world has always been eager to claim ownership of Christ's kingdom, to bolster its own power. So, buried under the rotten fruit of this heresy, we cry out in harmony with the voice of Jeremiah, enough! And that is where the kingdom of God, the actual kingdom of God, comes in. Where other kings celebrated their coronation with great feasts and music, grand speeches and crowds chanting their name, Jesus' coronation was a crucifixion. And the only one silently chanting his name was a sign nailed above his head. Meant to be a cruel joke, it read, this is the king of the Jews. Save yourself, they all taunted. If you're really as powerful as you say you are, save yourself. But they did not understand power. They did not understand his kingdom. Even the thief bleeding out next to him on his left couldn't resist one more jab, one more chance to feel better than someone. But then there was the thief to his right, and he was a different story. They say facing your death changes a person. And I don't mean scaring them into doing all the things they always wish that they had done. I mean facing your death and accepting it. This is coming. I can't escape this. Father Richard Rohr worked for a long time as a chaplain to inmates on death row, and he claims that more often than not, these men had reached something like enlightenment, that they were somehow more liberated than those he would see walking outside of the prison. Struggling for breath on his own cross, it seems that this man saw it, his death. And like Rohr's friends, he realized how much of what he thought was his life was in reality not real. It was like he'd been anxiously trying to win a game that he'd suddenly realized he didn't have to play at all. The grudges he'd held, the things he'd accumulated, the power he'd sought, all of these things suddenly seemed silly. Nothing more than shadows, illusions. Everything he'd used to define himself, suddenly he let go of them. And when that happens, that's when you die. Not your body, but yourself. And what remains is something more fully yourself than you have ever been able to be. And this crucified thief may just be the first one in this story to realize himself a citizen of the kingdom of God. And looking to his side, he recognized the king of this world. And he knew he had further to follow him still. 
Jesus, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I wonder if Jesus' voice caught as he embraced his brother with his words. The truth is, today you will be with me in paradise. It was his first sermon, and it was his last. The kingdom of God is at hand. Paradise is today. Christ comes into his kingdom not by a sword, but by a cross. And it bears the fruit not of domination, but of nonviolent, nonjudgmental, unconditional love. The kingdom of God is that reality where God reigns. It is that realm, always before us, yet often missed, where love is the ultimate authority. We live most of our lives in the ghostly kingdoms of our egos and the kingdoms of the egos of others. Where our self-constructed and society-constructed scripts reign as the ultimate authority. But the good news is that there is a different kingdom, a different reality at hand as close as your own breath. And this is a difficult thing to really define. And the best tools we have to recognize it are the stories and images that Jesus gave us to circle around it. The kingdom of God is like laborers that can't all work the same amount of hours but are all paid the same wage. Because every human being, regardless of what life has done to make them who they are, are totally beloved. In that reality, every human being is embraced and forgiven everything without reserve, like a father embracing his prodigal son. In that reality, every part of you, even the parts you're ashamed of, are accepted and allowed with compassion because that is how every part is redeemed, like a garden with wheat and tares growing up alongside one another. In that reality, every human being is capable of great acts of love, like a suspicious Samaritan caring for a man on the side of the road. That reality will not fade and will always sustain those who find it, and therefore is much more valuable than anything you could actually possess, like a field with a hidden treasure, worth selling everything to buy it, even though the world is going to think you've lost your mind. The reality is contagious moving through open hearts like leaven that a woman secretly worked into some dough or a mustard seed that some scoundrel sowed in a garden. And the reality is expansive, including every human, animal, and element without exception, like a net thrown into the sea to gather fish of every kind. But that reality is often missed by those who think they already have everything they need, like a rich fool storing up grain who dies in the night. And it's often missed by those too afraid of losing what little they have, like a steward that buries his master's talents. And we enter this realm only through death, by letting go of our attachments to the world, by giving up our addiction to judgment and bad stories, by dying to ourselves, by losing our life so that we might find it, by picking up our cross and trusting that resurrection awaits us in that dark tomb. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. And when it manifests in all of its social and political oddity, the powers of this world 
cannot stand it. Our last reading was from Paul's letter to Colossae, and I really doubt it offended anyone. It may sound mild to our ears, but spoken into a society where terms like Lord or the image of the invisible God or the highest throne were reserved exclusively as propaganda terms to describe only Caesar? Now that is an act of political, poetic subversion. And is it any wonder that Paul met his fate in a Roman prison? To claim Christ as a higher authority than even the authority of the state and to do it seriously, that is a dangerous business. Never forget that John the Baptist was beheaded by the king he criticized. Or that the one we bow to each week was executed as an enemy of the state. Many of you have probably heard the story of Scott Warren, a volunteer with a group called No More Deaths, which provides humanitarian aids to, aid to migrants crossing the Sonoran Desert, where dozens of dehydrated bodies of migrants are found every year. Arrested by Border Patrol agents in May, Warren currently faces 20 years in a federal prison for providing food, water, and clean clothes to human beings our nation has labeled illegal. To pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God while living in the kingdom of others is a dangerous business. And even on our small personal stages, the ego does not take kindly to being dethroned. It finds Christ's forgiveness offensive, Christ's embrace too wide, and God's healing a threat to our fragile sense of self. We're frightened by an authority who would look us in the eye and refuse to play by the rules of our games, who would say things like, you, my beloved, are going to die. And when you do, none of the resources you've been storing up, none of the grief or grudges that you've been holding on to are going to matter in the slightest. My beloved, why do you cling to rising and falling waves rather than resting in that vast ocean that will outlive all of the waves? Come and die, he says, so that you might live. And that is the invitation. That's always the invitation. Here we are at the end of another year in the Christian calendar, closing the book before opening it anew next week on the first Sunday of Advent. And here we encounter once again the invitation. It's an invitation not to some future escapist reality and not to don some heretical religious mask over an insatiable appetite to control our world. You know, it's tragically ironic that when Pope Pius XI instituted Christ the King Sunday in 1925, it was in response to the Catholic Church's loss of significant political power throughout Europe. He wanted to remind the people that Christ, or the Church, was really and always would be their ultimate king. But the idea subverts itself. No, this is an invitation to be cross-shaped, immortal, 
invisible realm of perfect acceptance and liberation. Call it the kingdom of God. Call it the kingdom of heaven, the reign of Christ, the kingdom of God, the republic of God, or even just capital R, reality. But whatever you call it, this is an invitation that meets you in every moment, reflected in every person and everything, because Jesus said at the beginning and said at the end, the kingdom of God is here, now, and at hand. I want to end with the words of a wise teacher who once wrote, the kingdom of God is you because you belong to the kingdom of God. It is the ground that you touch. It can be seen in a dead leaf, in a pebble, in an insect, in the sunshine, in the water, in the rain, and it is right here, right now. Ours is only to let go and see it.